Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. If I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember to listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast? I want to thank my friends at Leonard Skinner for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. It is the only Wicked Good Wrestling podcast out there. It is the People's Podcast. It is a major league of professional wrestling podcast. I'm John McAdam. Welcome again to Stick to Wrestling. A um, little business to get out of the way before we get started. I encourage you wholeheartedly, if you listen to this show, sign up for our Facebook page. Um, we got a lot. We're still getting a lot of really good commentary about our last show with the interview with Ole Anderson and Dave Meltzer. Uh, we actually had an NBA basketball thread pop out out of nowhere, which is pretty cool. And if you like this show, you want to hear me on Twitter, follow me on Twitter. Just search John McAdam and follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. Now, I haven't done this in like a year and a half. And I'm going to start doing it about once a month. It's called Mooching for Money. <laughs> I do this podcast for free. And if you would like to contribute to the podcast, like show a little appreciation, PayPal me. My email address is pro wrestling archives. That's all one word at gmail.com. So hopefully the money will come pouring in like it did, didn't do last time, but that's okay. And if you cannot, or just don't want to contribute to the show, I still thank you for listening. And with that, I want to bring on a new guest. The King of Baltimore, as far as I'm concerned, King of Baltimore Wrestling, John Felt. John, thank you for taking the time. No, thank you, uh, John. I appreciate you having me on your show. I came up with the idea to have you on a long time ago, and we are long overdue. John, tell me now, like I said, you're like the Baltimore guy the way I'm kind of the Boston guy. Tell me yeah. when you first started watching wrestling. I started watching wrestling in the early 80s. My father was a big wrestling fan. He loved Bruno and you know, the WWF, and he used to go to the Coliseum and everything. So I watched it with him. Um, we would watch Georgia Championship Wrestling when we visited my uncle in the county because we didn't have cable in the city. So when we went out there, we would watch that. But for me as a fan, it kind of started in late 85. Uh, my cousin Steve moved across the street and, you know, our fandom just took off. And then, of course, the glory years of 1986 and 87 was uh, really when we just you know, we were all over it, renting videotapes from Errol's video and buying the wrestling magazines every month. But yeah, probably 85 was really when my uh, fandom took off for wrestling. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And now tell us about the first card you ever attended. Like, uh, how long had you been a fan and what was, what was the show? Uh, the first card I went to was for my 12th birthday. It was May 17th, 1986. It was an NWA card. You know, the headline that night was Dusty and the Road Warriors against Ivan and Nikita Koloff and Baron Von Raschke in a cage for the six-man tag title. Dusty and the Road Warriors won. Um, that was my first card. So that place went crazy. I'd never heard anything that loud in my life. The Midnight Express also wrestled the Rock and Roll Express, and Jim was in a cage during that match. And uh, Magnum wrestled Tully. Tully was the national champion. Magnum was the U.S. champion. but yeah, that was my first card. It was for my 12th birthday. That is really cool. I like that. Now, we talk about this sometimes on the show. In the WWF, I mean, on TV, they made the cage matches sound like they were just insane. It was, you know, it was something straight out of the Roman Coliseum. And I remember seeing my first cage match and just being like, this sucks. <laughs> and the cage was nowhere near as big as they promised it would be. It was... Uh, Tony Atlas and Jesse the Body Ventura in Boston. And like I said, the whole thing was just, you know, a huge disappointment. Were you like, you know, but you were a lot younger than me. Like, were you happy with the with the cage expectation or what was it like for you? I think I was just in awe. You know, I mean, you walk in and you see that NWA banner along the side of the ring, you yep. know, and it was just I had never seen it before. So it was almost like when you walk into a ballpark and you see the field for the first time in a new stadium. That's the way it was when I walked out and I saw the ring. When we walked to my and got to our seats and we were kind of up, so we were looking down on the ring. We had great, you know, great spot, but 
it was just it was magic. You know, it was just, you know, that like you say, it's funny though, the ring doesn't look as big in person as you would think it would be, but yeah, it was it was magical, you know, when I went every time I went to wrestling, it was just magical. And the thing is, is that in the years that we went, which was basically 86 through 87, we never went to an N, uh, WWF show. We oh, wow. Only, we only went to NWA. Did you watch the WWF on TV? Absolutely. Oh, we wow. Did. And yeah, you just said these guys are not for me. I'm going to the NWA shows and that's it. It's funny. It, the WWF for me in the 80s, looking back at it now, was almost like a, a toy store. You know what I mean? You had the mm-hmm. larger than life characters. We got the LJN dolls and I had the ring and and everything. But, you know, the NWA it for me now is what sticks out. You know what I mean? I remember the angles. I remember the wrestlers and even the wrestlers in the WWF that I was drawn to were guys that came through Crockett and the AWA, and of course, you know, Bret Hart coming through Calgary and everything. So we were just more drawn to the NWA. I mean, we watched both. I watched Saturday Night's Main Event. I was, what, 13 when Hogan wrestled Andre at WrestleMania three. So I was so nervous. I didn't know until the next day if Hogan had won or not. But yeah, we just seemed to stick with NWA, which is odd because my wife, her parents went to the WWF. They never went to NWA. They only went to WWF shows. So it was kind of wild. Now, let's talk about this. Your wife's family or the women in your wife's family really (laughs) got pissed at Roddy Piper for a promo he specifically cut on the women of Baltimore. What did he say? It was on a Saturday morning. Uh, My wife was watching it with uh, her father and her grandfather. And Piper came out and started cutting a promo saying that, you know, women in Baltimore were pigs and they were ugly and they were fat and just, I don't know, just saying what he could about women being so terrible. And Marilyn and my my wife looked at her father and she was like, is that the show we're going to? (laughs) And he was like, yeah, it is. That's the one we're going to. And her mom from the other room was like, I hope he gets, I hope I can say this. I hope he gets his ass kicked. <laughs> so that night he wrestled uh Hogan. She got to see Hogan and Piper wrestle. That is pretty amazing that on her first show she got to see arguably two of the three biggest stars of the 80s go at it. Yeah, she she kind of enjoyed it. She liked Ricky Steamboat. Her favorite actually was Tito Santana. So, you know, I was kind of picking her brain before, you know, coming on the show finding like the things that they did. And you know, like her grandfather, uh, he bought tickets every single month for the WWF and just went, it was like basically church for him. He went every (laughs) single month to see the WWF. Now, when did he start and when did he stop? He actually started in the forties. Oh man. uh, Yeah. He was actually going to be an amateur boxer. I know this is kind of off subject for wrestling, but no, it's okay. He went to the Coliseum, which the the Baltimore Coliseum kind of predated the Civic Center. And he was actually going to be an amateur boxer. And he went down there one night with his gloves and all of his gear and everything. And he was getting ready to fight. And his father showed up and grabbed him by the ear and told him, you're not boxing. He grabbed him out of there and yanked him out. He never got to box in the Coliseum. But he started watching wrestling back then and went all the way up through the 80s. Wow. And your your dad was a fan, too. Did you go yeah. to those matches with your grandfather ever? No, no. I did, the first card, like I said, was, was with my dad. Um, my father went to see the WWF a lot in the 70s with him being a huge Bruno fan. Unfortunately, he was not in Baltimore the night that, you know, Graham beat San Martino. Oh, you know, you're kidding. I, now he didn't go to that card. He wasn't there that night. <laughs> that would Crazy, be right. Uh, that would be quite the painful memory for me if something historic happened in Boston. Like the one time something that was a big deal happened in Boston and I missed it. Oh, it would have broke his heart. I mean, as much as he loved Bruno, I mean, he would he probably would have been crying as he's walking out of there. <laughs> but yeah, um, he, he missed that one. Oh man, that that that's too bad. But yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the shows you went to. Like mm-hmm. it sounds like before they had the Tito Santana versus Greg Valentine title switch in Baltimore, but you weren't watching then either, right? Uh, no, wasn't that eighty four when Santana beat Valentine, or was that eighty five? Uh, let me see. Valentine beat Santana in eighty four, and then yes, eighty five. Uh, okay. the title switched back in Baltimore. Yeah, I just sure. remember being like, you know, wow, the title is no longer just changing. 
either on TV at Madison Square Garden or occasionally at the Philadelphia Civic Center. Yeah. You got to figure what every title change up to the San Martino loss to Graham was what at the, the Garden, right? I think one of them was at Philadelphia. I think Pedro Morales lost the title to Stasiak in Philadelphia. But other okay. than that, yeah, it was strictly New York. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a it was an odd thing for something to happen in Baltimore. I don't know if maybe Baltimore had just started to to pick up and everything. I mean, you go back into the 50s and 60s with Baltimore and the, the wrestling tradition is pretty rich. I mean, we had a yeah. lot, lot of legends come through the city. You know, back in the the twenties and the thirties, I mean, a Jim Lundus card drew what would be today a four hundred and seventy four thousand dollar house in the nineteen thirties. So, you know, everybody came through Baltimore, whether it was Giant Baba or one of the things. I have a couple programs from the fifties, and one program has Luthez as world champion, and one program has Carpentier as champion. So, you know, the Ed Contos the the promoter basically brought in who he needed to bring in. I mean, uh, Argent and Antonio Tantonino Rocca, sorry about that. He had a seven year win streak in Baltimore from 1955 to 1962. I did so, not know that. Yeah. And, you know, Buddy Rogers wrestled here under his real name. Um, Mildred Burke, the Kangaroos, the Grams, Johnny Valentine, Stanislaw Sabisco was actually in the first match in 1922 in Baltimore that was sanctioned by the boxing commission. So, you know, it's, it goes back pretty far. I mean, you know, even if we found earlier that there was a card or a variety show at the 1840s that listed a wrestling and it was part of a variety show. You know, it was one of the earliest that we found being in Baltimore. 1840s. Wow. Yep. 1844. <laughs> now that, that, geez, that's crazy. Now let me ask you this. You have apparently a very sad story about Road Warrior Animal at the Marriott. I've got to hear this. Okay, so we, we left the left the show that night. It was with my cousin Steve and my cousin Carl, and we were walking to the bus stop. And we're walking by, and Animal is standing in the lobby. And, you know, we're I'm 12, he's 14, we're little kids. He looks like just a giant. So we, you know, sheepishly walk into the lobby. He's standing, he's signing some, you know, some autographs and everything. We get right up to him. He looks at us. He goes, no more autographs. <laughs> and we're like, well, please, you know, we love you. We're, we think you guys are the best and blah, blah. He's like, no more autographs. And we're like, oh, come on. He's like, leave me alone. And we're <laughs> like, okay. At that point, we just turned around and walked, walked away. But it was like, man, you get that close to Roy Warrior Animal and he tells you no. Breaking a 12-year-old's heart. It killed me. And he he was signing autographs for the guys before you guys got there. That's the of part course, that really sucks. Of course, the two people in front of us were two women, so I'm sure oh, yeah. they didn't mind signing their autographs. <laughs> okay, I, I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I'll tell you, even out of any context, as soon as someone says the Marriott, I mean, a, a smile breaks out of my face because, you know, I have seen the uh what goes on at the or what went <laughs> on at the marriott in philadelphia and baltimore back in the day what how many promos did flair cut on the marriott <laughs> oh that's baltimore, right yeah you know he, he wanted to make was... sure that if you were a female and you were looking for rick flair you knew where to find him yep the the marriott after the show yep it was all the time and of course, you know, like we would go and hang out with whoever we could hang out with, which, you know, sometimes that worked out pretty well. And sometimes it didn't. What can I say? Yeah. You know, I always wanted to, you know, but we were with us being kids, you know, I mean, I went in 86 and we went quite a bit in 87, but 1987 was the last time I went to a major promotions card. We had moved from the city. I moved away from my cousin and, you know, I met my future wife and you know i still followed wrestling you know and everything but never went back and last year was the first time i had been to some independent shows but um i went to the aew card they i think it was full gear last year and just to kind of see what it was like and you know i enjoyed it i mean some of the wrestling's not for me but it was pretty cool to see the rock and roll express come in and you know ricky morton do that canadian driver thing that he does or whatever but that was pretty cool but yeah, we always like, like talked about maybe going to Sabatino's and seeing if we can find the wrestlers down there and see if we can get their autographs and everything. But never happened. But, you know, what do you do when you're 12 and 13? You're probably not going to get a Sabatino's anyway. 
<laughs> no, I, I know what you're saying. So let me ask you this. You went in 86 and 87, mm-hmm. and did you, like, you stopped going? Did you stop being a fan, or what happened? No, it was just a matter of, you know, when my dad had taken me in 80s, you know, May of 86, he took us to a show. A neighbor of ours had gotten front row seats to the NWA. And um, that show was great because it was a barbed wire. The main event was a barbed wire match between Tully and Magnum. So that was great. And, um, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about the Crockett Cup, but I went with my cousins. My dad, you know, really didn't go. And then once we moved away from the city and I moved away from my cousin, it just didn't go back. And I stayed a fan. You know, I bought the wrestling magazines every month. I still watched wrestling. It was probably, though, around late 88 or so that I kind of stopped watching, but still bought the magazines. You know, I knew in 89 of, you know, the Steamboat and Flair trilogy and, of course, the WrestleMania with uh, Savage and Hogan and, and everything. And. You know, we watched, like I said, the main event in that February when Andre beat Hogan. So it was just a matter of just never really having the opportunity or really anybody to go with me again. Ah, um, I understand. So, so where'd you move to? We only moved about 10 miles from where we lived before, you know, and from the inner city to a county. And then uh, we were there for a few years. And then I lived in West Virginia for a couple of years. And, you know, I didn't really know if there was any wrestling going on there, but... And then I moved back to Baltimore in the 90s. So I'd always bought magazines. You know, every couple months I'd pick up a couple of magazines or I'd flip on the WWF to see what was going on. But, you know, kind of got out of it for a while. Always on the, you know, like I said, if I'd see a PWI, I'd grab it. I always got the year-end awards for PWI. So I kind of kept my finger on what was going on. Got back into it a little bit around the Attitude Era. Um, not the garbage stuff that they did. I really love The Rock and Austin and everything. But, you know, now that I'm much older, I'm kind of more interested in the history. Yeah. Of, you know, and learning as much as I can by listening to you guys and Brian and Jim and everything. And just, you know, picking up and reading what I can to learn about, you know, the history of wrestling. So that's kind of where I am now. All right. Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sitting here doing the math, too. And you said you were like 12, 13 when you were mm-hmm. going to the shows in 86, 87. So obviously you're relying on, you know, dad's transportation. Yeah. And then by the time you got, you know, however old, 16, 17, when you could drive, it was a totally different product. And it, in my opinion, it was nowhere near as good. No. And, and, you know, at that point, you know, I'm I'm dating my wife and we're going out on the weekends and we're going you know, on dates and spending time together. And it just never really crossed my mind. And you're right. At that point, you know, Hogan had grown tiresome. You know, you kind of were past the love affair. At least I was with Hogan. You know, the NWA was, you know, dusty. We had gotten tired of the the dusty finish and everything. And, you know, things were moving along. Like you said, it just maybe the stuff just wasn't that good, as good in the, the late 80s, early 90s. At least for me, it just it kind of it kind of lost my attention. Oh, no. I mean, wrestling went through a really bad period in the early 90s. You know, I was at the Great American Bash in Baltimore in 1991, and they had just fired Ric Flair. And I was beginning to feel my fandom, you know, kind of straining a little bit. I mean, the WWF was what it was. That was losing popularity quickly. And the NWA, like, couldn't figure out what direction it wanted to go in one way or the other. And then the day finally came when, um, you know, they they decided to let go of Ric Flair. His contract was expiring in September anyway, and they let him go at the end of June 1991. And I traveled from Nashua to Baltimore to watch the show. And I, I attended the show. I, I attended three great American bashes in Baltimore, 89, 90 and 91 and 91. It was such a, 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 a different audience. It was like, there's like 11,000 people in the building and they're all angry with the promotion. And they did something smart. The NWA, they had before the show, they had Gary Michael Capetta get in the ring and he says, you know, tonight's main event is uh, Barry Windham against Lex Luger and Ric Flair is no longer with the NWA. And, you know, everyone just started screaming, we want Flair. Well, guess what? It was smart. The loudest by far we want Flair chant was not on their pay-per-view. What's your <laughs> opinion of Ric Flair? Were you a big fan of his? 
As a kid, no. I couldn't stand him. You know, Good. He, he did his job as the heel. You know, I couldn't stand him. I couldn't stand the the horseman. You know, they're beating up my guy. They're beating up Dusty, you know, attacking him in the parking lot and everything. But no, I've grown to appreciate Flair. But I, I kind of got a love-hate thing with Flair. To me, the Flair after the accident to, say, 1987 was probably one of the best wrestlers of all time. I think that that was peak Flair. Now, don't get me wrong. He had the great run with Steamboat in 89. But, you know, Flair in 85, 86, you know, the way that he carried himself as the NWA champion, looking back on it now, is just phenomenal. But to me, the later years, you know, he had the run in the WWF with the two title reigns. And coming back and you look at, like, his later reigns, some of those, to get to 16, some of those reigns were, you know, kind of fluff and whatever. And, you know, you look back now and you do see the similarities in every match with Flair. But, you know, with every wrestler, it's that way. You can watch a Bret Hart match, and as good as he was, you know, there was always a certain move set that he stuck to when he was in a match. But th- some days I like Flair a lot, and some days I'm like, eh, he was okay. <laughs> well, I'm actually glad to hear, for, first of all, a dissenting opinion on Ric Flair. He's my favorite wrestler of all time, and that doesn't oh, mean he, he has to be yours. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. I like that. <laughs> Um, and, and number two, he, you were not a fan of the heels, and I think that's actually kind of cool. No, I didn't. You know, I my father could not stand Cornette. God, he hated Cornette. One of his biggest insults for Cornette when we were at the shows is he called him an ickin' airhead. Don't know what that means, but he always called him an ickin' airhead and a jackass. So, <laughs> you know, we didn't like the Midnight Express because, again, they were beating up our boys. They were beating up Ricky and Robert. And yeah. You know, he didn't like the the horseman. But what's what's funny is that as as you got a little bit older, you kind of appreciated the heels a little bit more. I mean, you know, a guy like Arn Anderson just stuck out. Yeah. You know, and I hated Tully. Oh, I hated Tully. But now I go back and I look at Tully and I'm like, God, he was good. So good at what he did. He really was. Yeah. And, you you know, it's like you you watch. I didn't mean to cut you off, but you watch uh, Starcade 87. You know, the match where everybody's upset that the Road Warriors didn't beat them for the belts. But just just watching Tully and Arn bounce around for those guys and their body language and the, the faces that they're making, everything, just they were just so good. So good. Of course, back then I couldn't stand them. I wanted the Road Warriors to beat them for the belts. But now I look back at them and just in all that, you know, they basically trained those guys, the Road Warriors and Lex Lugers on how to to work and everything. So you kind of appreciate them more now than when you were a fan and you hated their guts. Yeah. I mean, I look at some of the stuff that is on WWE network that, I mean, just came out like a year or two ago, some of the like bashes from 1986. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I just found find a newfound appreciation for not only Tully Blanchard, who was Mm -hmm. absolutely awesome, but for JJ Dillon. Yeah. JJ, you know, you look at the first war games, you know, where, Dylan got hurt. You know, they separated it. I think he separated his shoulder when the Road Warriors gave him the, the clothesline. He was so good. You're right. He, he could he could sell in a way that was in a, a bit comical, but not funny, funny. You know, he bled. He knew what to do in the ring. He just, yeah, you, you come to appreciate JJ, too. You know, that yeah. whole group, that whole at the first, you know, the first four with Ollie, Arn, Tully and Flair and JJ. Probably one of the best of all time in, you know, a group of wrestlers. Oh, I, I completely agree. I mean, yeah. and it was funny back in the late 80s. I mean, the newsletters didn't, I don't, don't want to say they didn't like J.J. Dillon, but he was not appreciated enough by that crowd. And I think a lot of it was because, you know, hey, we've decided that Jim Cornette's the best and J.J. is what he is. But he, I thought he played his role incredibly well as the guy who takes care of these four guys, the four horsemen. He could get heat just standing in the back. You know, he would take his glasses off and put the, you know, the the part of his glass in his mouth and, you know, the that goes over the ear and just yeah. kind of look very just cocky and everything. And you just wanted to smack him. You're like, and he didn't say a word. But then he would come <laughs> in and he would cut this great promo around four guys who were incredible promo guys. And he could hang he could hang with them every every single week. No, he played his role extremely well. So yeah. you were a fan of the baby faces. What do you think, what in your opinion was the best match you saw in Baltimore uh, during that 86, 87 time frame? Without a doubt, 
It was the Road Warriors and Midnight Express, the second night of the Crockett Cup. It was just the crowd was on fire. You know, you had just had Cornette burn Ronnie Garvin. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, you you wanted to see them get their tails. That, believe it or not, that was the first time I saw Stan in the group because or in the team because. Again, not having cable, I didn't even know that Dennis was gone. You know, they come down and ring. I'm saying to my dad, I'm like, who's that guy? And then, you know, said it was Stan Lane. And I kind of recognized his name from the the magazines being with, uh, you know, the fabulous ones. But, yeah, that match was just, man, that was on that crowd was on fire that night for that match. And then, of course, the ending when Jim tries to throw the fireball at Animal and the way Animal falls back and then everything. I mean. When they lost that match, I mean, I thought the roof was going to come off the arena. You know, again, the one thing I always like to say from when I was a kid was magic. You know what I mean? You felt it. You you just wanted the Road Warriors to beat them up. And unfortunately, you know, they didn't they didn't get the chance to go and wrestle Dusty and Nikita. But at least Dusty and Nikita beat the Midnight Express to go on to the final of the Crockett Cup. There, there the you other, go. The other one was the Barry Wyndham Ric Flair match. That from that same match. night. From that same night from that was the first time, you know, I had seen a match, of course, that long. You know what I mean? I think they they went like 40, 50 minutes or something. But that was incredible. Again, the crowd was into I think the crowd being into it really builds a card up. You know what I mean? When everybody's just sitting on their hands and it's quiet and everything, it's okay. But when the crowd is on fire, it kind of pumps you up as a fan and you're really getting into it, too. And Flair and Wyndham were so good at that time. So, so good. They definitely were. I mean, it's funny to look back. I mean, Barry Windham spent most of 1986 wrestling for the old Florida promotion that was dying before our eyes. And then he comes to Crockett like fall. I want to say September, October 86. And you just see how incredible, you know, what what a great performer he was. It's like, you know, wow. He was he was just wasting away. Absolutely. Absolutely. Barry was one of those guys that just was a natural you know what i mean he the things he could do the way he could sell he'd always have like those rubber legs and everything when a guy hit him really good and you know he complimented flair he was a lot like steamboat steamboat and Wyndham really complimented flair and flair a lot of times actually broke from that tradition i mean he always got thrown off the top rope and everything but he could go i mean the, yeah. the, the three of those guys going in the 80s it was it was good stuff to watch yeah, I remember when I for, when Barry Windham first turned heel. I want to say it was yeah, it was March of 1988. I did not see it coming. I did not hear about it, you know that this was going to happen. Uh, so meaning they did a good job keeping it a secret. And I, I question whether or not Barry Windham would be effective as a heel because he'd never done it before, and he was every bit as good a heel as he was as a babyface, maybe even better. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was very good as a heel. Even, you know, even just adding that little black glove, you know what I mean? Just kind of taken from what his father did and everything. Yet yeah, he really, he, he excelled at being a heel, you know, which sometimes I almost felt like he was a better heel than he was a face at times. I, and that's just, that's not knocking him as a face. That's saying, no, wow, he was that no. good as a heel. Yeah. And he was a great worker. Yeah, both both sides of the thing. And you would think, you know, he grew up in a wrestling family. His dad was a heel, so. I mean, I should have figured that out coming in. Right, right. It's in the jeans. Exactly. We have a couple of questions I really want to get to. Lawrence Miles asks, who promoted in Baltimore before Capital Wrestling? I don't know this, John. Do you? It was Ed Contos. He promoted, I believe, from the 30s up through um, the 50s or 60s or so. He ran the, the Coliseum, which was in the city, and he also ran... A was kind of like a it was called Carlin's Park. It was an amusement park that had um, actually, believe it or not, it was the home of the Baltimore Orioles hockey team. That oh, was wow. the amateur team. Yeah. So they ran cards there at Carlin's Park and then they moved to the Coliseum. And Ed Contos uh, was the promoter down there up until I want to say he passed away in the 50s or 60s. I need to check with my buddy, Timothy Johnson. Uh, he does a great research on Baltimore history. And I was actually trying to scroll through his uh, Twitter page to find some info, but yeah, it was Ed Contos who was promoting in Baltimore back in the, the forties, fifties heading into the sixties. All right. Now here's a question I have. This is from, from me. 
obviously at some point the Baltimore was using, you know, Luthez, the NWA champion. You mentioned that they had brought in Carpentier. Mm-hmm. When did the WWF take over Baltimore? And if you have any information, like how was it done? I'm not really sure. You know, it, I think that it was probably around the late 60s, maybe when I, I think that Contos at one point had tried to join the NWA board. And, you know, he wasn't, he was declined. They wouldn't bring him in. But I'm not really sure the transition to when it was basically just WWF uh, wrestlers. I'm pr- I probably would venture to say maybe when they moved to the Civic Center in 62. 62 was when they moved to the Civic Center and the Coliseum they stopped using around that time. Okay. So maybe around the time that Rogers had won the title and um, Contos had passed away, maybe that was when Vince Sr. had somebody else come in and start running Baltimore and being a little bit more WWF instead of bringing guys from all over the country. Because at point, you had Vern Gagne coming in, wrestling as the U.S. champion. Like I said, Giant Baba coming into wrestling Baltimore. So maybe it was the early 60s. I could... I could look it up, maybe put it on a stick to wrestling uh, Facebook page. That would you know, be I fin- talk to Timothy and see what I can find out. That would be fantastic. Now, yeah. let me ask you this. I, I have an idea, but how far in terms of time traveled is Baltimore from Washington, D.C.? Probably about 30, 30, 40 minutes. Okay, that that's a, was about my experience. Let me ask you this. like, What was it like having two major towns so close to each other? you know, either back in like the fifties or sixties coming into the WWF days. I don't know. It's, it's it's kind of hard for me to answer because I'm not really sure what it was like back then. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in that little uh, box of what was going on with Baltimore. Not really sure what was going on in DC and, you know, from Philly and things like that. I mean, I know that there were promotions across the state of Maryland, yeah, but not really, you know, sure as to, that transition from the, you know, the WWF over. I mean, because you got to figure in the, the early 80s, even Ole came up with Georgia Championship Wrestling and ran some cards in the arena. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And one of them is actually on WWE Network. I recommend it because uh, it has a really good Ric Flair versus Jack Briscoe match on it. Ooh. Yeah. And I believe it was the last time Jack wrestled for the NWA title. He would be off to the WWF pretty soon as, as a matter of fact his, his career was kind of winding down anyway but yeah i mean we someone might say to me well boston and providence are really close to each other how did that work and it's just providence wasn't as big a city as either baltimore or washington so providence really didn't get much you know if they don't have any major league sports there so it was all kind of centered around boston yeah and if going back like going back through the the cornet um midnight express scrapbook it was, seemed like it was like towards the 80s. It was kind of few and far between uh, to do DC shows. There was uh, the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland. It was used for shows. That was kind of closer to DC. Um, there was a, um, I can't remember the name of the, the venue, but there was something in DC that McMahon ran when Contos was running the Coliseum in Baltimore. But, you know, it, it's funny. I When I found out that the, you know, Jake Robertson, uh, Ronnie Garvin had wrestled for the TV title for Georgia Championship Wrestling. I got the magazine. I think it was a Inside Wrestling, and I'm like, I'm going to a convention, and the Snake's going to be there, and Garvin's going to be there. Boy, that was a trip because Jake Roberts was running around fooling with um, Tony Atlas, so I could barely get his signature on the thing. And then I go and I meet Ronnie Garvin, and Ronnie Garvin starts like throwing out political propaganda. And I'm like, my, my God, all I want to do is get your autograph. I don't even know your political. <laughs> <laughs> he he talked me out for like 10 minutes i'm like okay you're not going to sway me to whatever you're believing and then he started talking bad about dusty and i'm like all right that's enough that's enough oh I wow just, how long ago was this this was 2017 this was in jersey it was actually the first time i met Cornette. it was uh something champions or i can't remember what it was but it was a uh, thing in jersey in 2017 oh wow yeah yeah I mean, well, and Ronnie Garvin just comes out without provocation and starts talking bad about Dusty Rhodes. That's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He went from, like I said, he went from talking politics to how crappy of a, you know, Booker Dusty was. And he always put himself in the, the main events and always this and that and the other. And, you know, I let him talk for a couple of minutes. And I'm like, all right, I got to go. You know, so I almost had to break away from him and stop him from talking to walk away instead of me running my mouth. <laughs> Usually it's the opposite with the wrestlers. That's pretty funny. 
Exactly. Exactly. I mean, people are, you know, I mean, people, I met Ronnie Garvin multiple times. He was a really good guy, but I mean, he wasn't there to, to talk shop with some dude in his early twenties. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. So that was a hoot. All right. Well, anyway, I have a question from our pal, Mike Fahey, who was also from Baltimore, or at least he's from the Baltimore area. I know he's a big Maryland Terrapins fan. Uh, John, I know you went to some shows at the arena in Baltimore, which I did. I actually went to another show in 87 beyond like the, the bashes. Uh, that was, what was it? Labor day weekend. And he said the thought on the crowd in comparison to the Boston garden. And I've always said this, there is some line between Baltimore and Philadelphia where like people in New York and Boston and Philly, I mean, I'm sorry, there's no other word. Like we're a bunch of assholes. We know it. It's cool. <laughs> and somewhere down the line, there's like a line because I went to a, a baseball game in Baltimore, an Orioles game in 88. And John, I don't know if you remember, the Orioles were like historically bad that season. Would they start and, out 0 and 21 or 0 and 22 or something? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. It and bad. it didn't, it didn't get much better. I go to the game and I'm I'm waiting for the fine people of Baltimore to start start savaging Fred Lynn and Eddie Murray and everyone else because that's what would happen in Boston. I'm telling you right now, I would it would happen in New York and Philly too. And the the fans were just so polite to these guys; they were actually <laughs> nice. They were cheering them and you know rooting them on. I was I was just taken aback by the experience. And to answer Mike's question. I thought it was a lot less crazy in Baltimore. There was heat. And I'm not saying there wasn't. There was just something that in, in the water in Boston. I mean, until the mid-70s, they had this netting around the ring because people were throwing heavy things at the wrestlers. You know, we talked about Blackjack Mulligan getting stabbed in Boston. It was just you know something about wrestling night and hockey night in Boston just made everyone crazy. Things were a lot more civilized at the Celtics and Red Sox games, but you know, not saying those weren't crazy either, but uh, yeah. So I would say the, the crowds in Boston were a lot wilder and that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, I've talked about, you know, when my friends and I would go in like 81, 82, 83, you didn't wear anything that made you stand out from the crowd. Like don't wear, you know, a Patriots t-shirt or anything like that. Cause someone will start yelling at you about, they don't like the Patriots or, you know, they performed poorly or whatever else. But anyway, so what was your favorite show that you ever went to? Did you, did you get to go to one of the great American bashes? I did not believe it or not being, you know, in Baltimore, you know, the stretch that they have with the bashes now never got to go one. So again, for me, everything always goes back to the Crockett cup. So the second night of the Crockett cup was pretty incredible. I mean, the first night was great. You know, Ollie pile driving Bubba Rogers in a cage was pretty cool. But the the second night of the Crockett Cup is the one that stands out for me the most. You know, Dusty coming off the top with a cross body block on Tully Blanchard, who's about to pile drive Nikita Koloff, who had the bad neck. Yep. You know, it was, it was great stuff. Great stuff. But, you know, you were talking about Philly. I don't mean to change subjects, but. No, go ahead. Emmett Smith one time says, you know, they call Philly the city of brotherly love. He's like, you go to Philly, you get no love in Philly. <laughs> so. Any team that comes into Philadelphia catches some slack for not being, you know, from Philly, especially a cowboy. Oh, yeah. But, but going back to the wrestling thing, it was the second night of the Crockett Cup. That was, without a doubt, my favorite night as a kid. Now, when the finals happen, you've got Tully Blanchard, one of the top guys in the promotion, obviously. And you've got this shiny new Lex Luger guy who obviously was getting the giant push right from the start. They're in the finals against Dusty and Nikita. Like, even when you were that age, did you kind of, first of all, let me, let me ask you this. You kind of knew this wasn't like a, a legit sporting event, right? I'm guessing. Yes. There were parts that you kind of thought was real. And then uh -huh. there were parts that you figured that wasn't. You know, one of the, one of the things that stands out the most to me was when I got my first wrestling video that my dad bought for me or my parents bought for me was uh, uh bash 86. And, you know, and then, that was great. But Bash 87, it was the War Games uh -huh. videotape. And there is a basically a shot where Animal gets thrown into the cage and he's down on his belly and you see his hands up by his forehead and then his hands go down to his trunks and it looks like he's putting something in his trunks. And for years, my mom used to say to me, oh, they cut themselves with razor blades and everything. I didn't believe her. I saw that. I was like, man, they do cut themselves with razor blades. So. 
Yeah, at that point, we kind of figured, you know, some of it was real and some of it was not real. So, but yeah, you know, the there was still a little bit of mystique. They still made you believe, but then you could see things. You could see that punches weren't landing most of the time. Yeah. So my, my second part of that question then, like when they had that final, like did you automatically say, okay, Dusty and Nikita are definitely winning this thing, or do, did you have a question mark? No, I knew Dusty and Nikita were going to win, especially after Magnum walking down to the ring. Oh, that's right. There's no way you're going to have Dusty and Nikita lose with Magnum walking down to the ring for the first time since his accident. Yeah, I mean, my my friends and I, when we would go to Boston, like uh, the rule was, okay, turn off your brain and pretend that it's real. Just, you know, take it like it's a movie. But sometimes you just couldn't do that. You know, like, I mean, you knew Killer Khan wasn't beating Bob Backlund in Boston. Like, you know, even with WrestleMania three, I said before that I was nervous because. You know, I wasn't sure, but there was kind of a part that was thinking, you know, they were building Andre up as being undefeated and everything. And he was this monster and and whatnot. But I kind of had a feeling he wasn't going to beat Hogan. And then I think what shocked me, too, was the main event when they did the twin Hebners and uh, Andre took the belt from Hogan. Um, But heading into WrestleMania four. I knew that Savage was going to win the title. There was no way that DiBiase was going to win the belt. But that was probably around the time that things kind of almost became obvious, you know, that things were going to happen. I mean, even with uh, Steamboat coming in and beating Flair, that wasn't super, you know, surprising. You know, he just comes out of nowhere. You figure they're going to do something, you know, to change things up a little bit. But no, it was probably, you know, that that's when the, you know, you saw behind the curtain a little bit and saw through the smoke and mirrors. Yeah, this, I mean, the same for me. I, I will be honest with you. When they were building up the Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan match, they did something that I thought was spectacular. One of the greatest swerves ever. And that is they, they go on, I think it was Piper's Pit. They mm-hmm. show the ultimate, uh, the, the giant belt that they had to make special made for Andre. Yeah. I think the average person who even, you know, they, they know wrestling's not on, in the legitimate or, you know, they, they know it's booked. And yeah. that, I said to myself, wait a minute, why would they go out and have this belt made if Andre wasn't going to win? Right. And I kind of figured, okay, you know, maybe Andre will win the title, hold it. And I had no idea Andre was having health problems. Um, I had right. literally just started getting the Observer like two months ago, and it hadn't all soaked in yet. And right. I'm like, you know, what if they just have Andre have the title for a year? We you know, have Hogan win it back at the next wrestlemania or maybe you know i don't know when but Mm -hmm. they they did a good job you know to me with that you know making us wonder okay who's gonna win this thing yeah absolutely absolutely and you know they they didn't spend a lot of time building that up i mean they used piper's pit really well to build it up you know what i mean hogan coming out and andre comes out and rips the cross off of his chest and everything and what that and then he came back the next week and said he was going to take the challenge. He did, you know. So, yeah, it wasn't a lot to build it up. But, man, it created a lot of drama, you know, just for that one match. And you had Hogan, who was a superhero, and you had Andre built up as the ultimate undefeated guy. So, you know, it was pretty It was pretty great. It was a great time to be a wrestling fan. It was. That was, I mean, you know, whether or not Andre could work, it didn't matter to the average person. I mean, it. that was... Yeah. The match, uh, that was the biggest match of my lifetime. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, it was kind of the, the peak for me. Like I said, you know, from 85 to, you know, the late 88 or whatever, but 87. Yeah. That, that build up for WrestleMania three was just, that was the, like I said, I had a feeling Hogan was going to win, but I really wasn't sure. I was, you know, my father brought the newspaper home the next day. I still have the article that I clipped out of Hogan beating Andre. You know, the funny thing is, when you look back at WrestleMania 3, that was the first WWF show that had absolutely no fat. It was all steak. Um, e- even WrestleMania 2, you had like Jake Roberts against George Wells, etc. Yeah. Yeah. You know, matches that you knew, Jake, you know, that's a squash match. I mean, WrestleMania 3, they didn't need any kind of an undercard. Hogan Andre was going to sell the whole thing. But oh, when absolutely. you open, Yeah, but when you open up... With the Can-Am connection, who was getting a a rocket push at that time against Morocco and Orton in the opener, I just said to myself, oh, my God, this is going to be just an amazing afternoon, and it was. 
Yeah, and it had a little bit for everybody. You know, you go with Hillbilly Jim and a Haiti kid and a little beaver against King Kong Bundy, Little Tokyo, and Little Lord Littlebrook. You know what I mean? So you had that for the kids, too. The kids could see the little people wrestlers. or I didn't know if midget would be, you know, they call them nowadays. <laughs> if they call them midgets, I'll call them midgets. <laughs> exactly. You know, Harley and Junkyard Dog, Valentine and Beefcake. Wasn't that when... Um, yeah, and then, of course, Piper and Adonis. You know, how can you go wrong with Adonis getting his head shaved? Of course, they didn't do it as good as they did in the NWA, but they shaved his head. I mean, the next week he came on TV with a completely shaved head. Poor Adrian, he gets <laughs> fired like three weeks later. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I don't know if you heard the story. Like, they were constantly at, no, I say at war, but there was constant friction between Adrian and the office because he wouldn't, he, it was too much to ask for him. To look respectable on an airplane. They, they wanted the wrestlers to wear, you know, just wear, I think they had to wear, I don't know, they didn't have to wear a suit or a tie or anything like that. It was just, you know, just look respectable. And Adrian would roll out of bed in his sweatpants and get on an airplane and <laughs> representing the WWF. So after so many years of that, they're like, okay, let's shave his head and get rid of him. I didn't know that. Do you think that's the reason why they gave him the gimmick that they did? To kind of try to push him out or embarrass him? Um, you know what? That's, that's kind of a, that's a Vince loved that gimmick. And when you look back at 86, Adrian Adonis got so much of a push and so much TV time, yet there was always a problem of some sort with Adrian Adonis. He got suspended in the summer of 86, uh, right before he was supposed to do a big program uh, with Piper. And then he comes back and I thought the program with Piper was kind of, I don't know. I, I thought it was beneath Piper, to be honest with you. And yeah. I'm an Adrian Adonis fan. Yeah. I mean, Piper at that point, it was almost rivaling Hogan for popularity when he, you know, he switched over from uh, heel because he was such a, an effective heel. So when he changed, he was, he was pretty hot there for a while. But yeah, you know, kind of him beating Adonis at WrestleMania three really isn't, you know, that big of a deal. It's not as great as the match he had with uh, Bret Hart at WrestleMania for the Intercontinental title. No, that was that was an outstanding match. So you were still watching in like 92 when that when that match happened. Were you still following it regularly or just kind of every now and then? Every now and then, you know, I would I would get a little interested around WrestleMania. And then, like I said, I was constantly picking up the wrestling magazines. So if I saw something on a cover, like I said, I always got the the year end awards and I always tried to get the uh, super cards uh, issue of um, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. So, yeah, it was just a matter of, you know, if I saw something that I, you know, that kind of piqued my interest, I picked up the magazine and will turn on, you know, even my dad to this day. I mean, you know, being a fan going back to the 50s and 60s, he'll occasionally turn on Raw and see what's going on or he'll turn on SmackDown. And I I do the same thing. I'll just turn it on just to see. Or, you know, one of the things that I do now is after a pay-per-view, I'll go online and look at the results and, you know, see what's going on. Because there's still some guys that I... I could follow or seem to like in wrestling today. You know, it's funny. We had some wrestling talk over Thanksgiving and, you know, I was asked, do I still watch? And I do. I watch the week, the monthly events. They still call them pay-per-view. So I might as well on WWE (laughs) network. But other than that, I just can't do raw SmackDown every week. I'm glad your dad can get into it. uh, Occasionally a little bit. (laughs) I don't remember the last time I watched the full wrestling show. I, you know, it, it just, it's different. Yeah, it is different. And it, it's tough now, even with COVID going on and no crowds being there. And even though they have the screens and, you know, the little everybody on the screens, it's just it's different. You know, and yeah, it's too much. Uh, I mean, I don't want to to sound like a cornet clone, but it, it, it's too much of an exhibition now. There, there, There's, you know, there's not a lot that makes you suspend disbelief. I mean, I know, like they always say, the horse has left the barn. You can never go back to kayfabe. But it is difficult to watch them kind of go through a routine and things like that and constantly reading people saying, well, the work rate was this and this, that and the other. And it's kind of like back when, you know, back when we watched it and we were really into it, the guy made a mistake. He made a mistake. It's not like you said, oh, well, you know, he fumbled this or whatever. It kind of still looked like a a match. It still looked like they were fighting for something. Nowadays, it doesn't look like that. So No, it doesn't. You know, it's funny you mentioned the the magazines. I mean, I was I was crazy with the wrestling magazines when I was a kid. There was a time when I literally not only did I buy everything that I saw at the store, I literally had purchased every back issue 
of the after magazines that were available. Like I would Did go through really? Yeah, I would go wow. through the wrestling magazines. Okay, what back issue can I buy? And I already had all of them. I was insane. And then when I started getting the Observer in, you know, started getting it late 86, very end of 86, like the 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 after magazines almost immediately became obsolete to me. And that, in a way yeah. it was kind of sad because you know, I'd grown up with those. I'd been buying them for yeah. literally exactly 10 and a half years. And out of some bizarre loyalty, yeah. I kept buying Inside Wrestling, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and The Wrestler every single month. And my it wasn't even a New Year's resolution. It was like a new decade resolution. I, I, I said to myself in 89, starting in 1990, I'm not doing this anymore. I am <laughs> only, as you did, uh, well, not only for you, but only for me, I only bought the year-end awards issue. And even then, by the time the 90s were over, I was kind of done doing that. And I know I know that, you know, what you're saying, like the, the magazines kind of losing, you know, kind of like their validity once you start reading the, the Observer. But like for me, the year end awards was always something to look forward to. And through the power of eBay, I've been able to go back and get every award issue in the lineage of the Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I have from 1972 up through the last year when Adam Cole won Wrestler of the Year. Wow. So I have, so I have the, the 72. It's the cover where Bruno won the the Battle Royal in Los Angeles. Yep. So I have that going up through this year. So yeah, those are my those are my babies. I, I like those. Okay. No, I, I remember uh back in the day, like the magazines, you know, the after magazines would switch like one year it they, the awards would be like in the wrestler, then one yep. year it would be in like sports review wrestling, and then exactly. in the eighties. It almost felt like Bill After said, "Okay, this pro wrestling illustrated thing is going to be the magazine." And it, has, it had a great sounding title, yeah. and they had color pictures and everything, which was mm-hmm. you know made them very different. So, I mean, it was, it, what I'm saying in a long winded way, it was kind of nice to know where the year end awards were going to be. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you knew around, you know, like February or so that the issue was going to come out. So you started looking forward in the you know, your local grocery store or, you know, like a Rite Aid or something like that. But yeah, yeah. You know, but it's, it's pretty sad when you find out that Lou Brock is not a real person. You know what I mean? The guy who's, you remember Lou Brock from the wrestling magazines? He was supposed to be the cigar smoking old stogie uh, wrestling writer. Do you remember him? I remember Lou Brock from the St. Louis Cardinals. I also remember Matt Brock from the wrestling magazine. <laughs> it's Matt Brock. I'm sorry. That's okay. That was great. Yeah. I mean, I do remember that. And I remember as a kid, you know, thinking, okay, this guy is flying around the country for no apparent reason. So he can write a a paragraph about whatever city he had just been in. And I'm like, okay, but you know, I figured he was a real person. Like, no, he was a figment of Bill Apter's imagination. And I was, I was too old to be taken aback by this information. I really was. I was, uh, I learned that in like what, 87 when I was like 21 years old. That mm-hmm. yeah, they they made stuff up sometimes in the in the after magazines. And thank you for correcting my Lou Brock, Matt Brock. <laughs> and I'm sitting here with a Pro Wrestling Illustrated in front of me, and I still got it wrong. So uh, no sweat. I, I mean, you know what? Uh, our, our buddy Tyler Judd, he put it the best. I mean, when you're out here doing a podcast, the bullets are flying. You know, you <laughs> you don't have always have time to think about. No, not Lou Brock. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, here's a question I wanted to get in from Christian Body. We're almost done. This hour flies by. Was Baltimore Crockett's best northern city even over Philadelphia? Do you have an opinion on this? Are we talking drawing money wise or how um, out or whatever? Because uh, I'll tell you what, let's let's do both. Okay. I actually again, I I apologize. I saw that you had asked for questions and that one kind of intrigued me. So like I said, I grabbed Cornette's uh, Midnight Express scrapbook. And you uh-huh. so from so say May of 86, the show that I went to the first time in Baltimore, it was a $75,000 house. Philly that same month drew $55,000. And then for a non-bash event in July of 86, Baltimore drew 106000 But that was the veteran stadium show for the first bash. And that was a $215,000 house. So, you know, it kind of almost bounced back and forth. You know, Baltimore would do, here's a great one. In October of 86, the same day, 
that uh, they were in Philly and Baltimore, I'm sorry, 1286. Baltimore was at three o'clock in the afternoon. They did $107,000. Philly at 8 p.m. did $110,000. So $217,000 in two cities in one day in late 86 for Crockett. You know, it's funny. I went to a show in Baltimore in September 1987, and I, I took a trip. I visited my wrestling buddies down there, and I get a call once I get into town, and my friend's like, you know, hey, let's not go to the Philly show. Let's go to the Baltimore show, and he reads me the card, and I'm like, wow, yeah, sure. If you guys are willing to, to drive down there, I'm in, and yeah, so they had the same night using the same guys in Baltimore and Philly. And I'm, I'm working really hard to get this up. I'm trying to find it. Let me see. September. Was it September of 87? September 5th, 1987. They ran both shows on the same night. Philly drew 3,200. Wow. And Baltimore did 9,000. And I remember like Ric Flair and, and the horsemen, you know, they drove, they went on early in Philly. Uh, they drove up or they flew up. I don't know what they did. And they wrestled again that same night. It wasn't a matinee, the same night in Baltimore. And as a result in Baltimore, maybe you remember this. They had Nikita Koloff against Lex Luger in a two out of three fall match that went 42 minutes. Oh. Now, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Were you at this show? No. I wasn't. <laughs> Thank <Okay. goodness. laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I remember the man, you know, this is Nikita who was never that good. And Lex Luger, when he was first breaking in and they're relying on these two, you know, just to keep the show going until the horsemen arrive. And I'm sure everyone was, was greatly relieved when they got that signal. Yeah. N Nikita and Luger was just unbelievably bad. I'm sorry you missed it. Oh, and what's terrible too, is this was the less roided up you know, baby face Nikita Koloff. So that was even worse. You know, when he was, when he was juiced and he was the monster, at least it was like, wow, you know, this guy looks like, you know, an action figure. But once he <laughs> lost his muscle definition, oh, it's still not as bad as when he grew his hair out. But oh, you know, I, you know. beat me to it. <laughs> you, you know, it's it, it's like looking at this. It reminds me. I saw Nikita at a um, WrestleCade a couple years ago. And he told me that him, they were wrestling in Virginia and they had to wrestle in Baltimore that night. And there was something going on. They were running late. They actually had Nikita and Flair go on in the middle of the card so they could make it up to Baltimore for that night's show. And they went on, according to him, they went on kind of late. So they, you know, they just had to move things around to get them from one area to another. So at least he didn't have to go 40 minutes with Lex Luger to keep everybody happy until Flair got there. <laughs> I mean, I, I vaguely remember the match. There's no film of it. It's, it's from 33 years ago. But I mean, I remember just being like, oh, my God, this is awful. They, they I mean, you know, they, they didn't have 42 minutes of stuff to get in the match. I know. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. I can't even think about it. Uh, I can only imagine what it was like, like growing up in an NWA city. Like, God help us if I had grown up in Baltimore because. I would have gone to the shows in Philly. I would have gone to the shows in Washington and all points in between. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad I didn't burn all my money up like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, John, we are out of time. This has been, this is an excellent uh, show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your, your wealth of information. No, I appreciate the time. I mean, I'm glad that you told me Lou Brock was a baseball player instead of a <laughs> magazine writer. But you know, other than that, I had a great time. Good. I'm glad to hear it. We will definitely do this again. I want to thank Lightning Lou Kippelman, our producer. Uh, by the way, I want to thank, really thank him for last week's show because um, it went over two hours and he was, had to splice together like the Ole and Dave interview and me and Thomas you know, talking about it. I'm sure that was a challenge. I want to publicly thank him and thank everyone for listening. Uh, this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So long from the Granite State. This concludes our podcast day.